The coronavirus pandemic changed a great deal about how many people view their work, whether it was those dubbed essential workers who risked their lives and health to continue to provide goods and services for the rest of us, office workers who discovered the convenience of working from home with or without pants, or those whose caregiving responsibilities required their disengagement from quote-unquote regular jobs. Paid labor looks very different in 2022 than it did in 2019. One of the most interesting trends that has emerged is the increased focus on unionizing service industry workers in large companies like Amazon and Starbucks, among others. Today, I'm going to talk to a labor historian about unionization campaigns and much more. So let's get started in the politics classroom, recorded on August 24th, 2022. This is The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Kate Floros, a clinical associate professor of political science at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Over the summer, I joined TikTok. So now you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Dr. Floros. For the first guest of the fall 2022 season of The Politics Classroom, I'm thrilled to welcome labor historian, Professor Jeff Shirky. Professor Shirky is an incoming assistant professor of labor studies at the SUNY Empire State College Harry Van Arsdale Jr. School of Labor Studies in New York City. He received his bachelor's degree in history from Colorado State University, a master's degree in international development and social change from Clark University, a master's degree in labor studies from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and a PhD in history from UIC. For the past two years, Professor Shirky has been a visiting lecturer in UIC's history department, and among his various professional credentials, he was an English teacher in the Peace Corps in Turkmenistan and a disaster preparedness specialist for the Red Cross in San Francisco as an AmeriCorps VISTA volunteer. His forthcoming book to be published in 2023 is Blue Collar Empire, the AFL-CIO and the Global Cold War. Professor Shirky, welcome to the Politics Classroom. Thank you for having me. So in addition to being a labor historian, you also have experience as a union member. So what came first, your academic interest in labor or your experience with unions? My experience with unions, my original academic and sort of career trajectory was towards like international development and humanitarian relief. I mentioned I was in the Peace Corps uh, and I did a master's in international development I worked with the Red Cross um, in San Francisco, and oddly enough, through those experiences, I kind of got exposed more to ideas of community organizing and social movements, and eventually the labor movement. And after finishing that master's in international development, I wound up working on a union campaign here in Chicago, which eventually turned into the Fight for Fifteen. It's a big campaign of mostly fast food workers organizing and holding short-term one-day strikes to demand a $15 minimum wage and a union recognition. So once I started getting involved in that, I thought, oh, I really want to change my whole career trajectory and my whole 
academic interest. I ended up doing a master's in labor studies. And then when I did my PhD in history at UIC, I uh, focused especially on labor history. Okay. And you also interned for the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers Union before becoming a professor. So how, how do you view the relationship between this academic career and labor organizing? I think they can go together pretty well. I mean, being a professor, being a lecturer, an academic worker, teaching assistant, you know, working in, a, in the university, you're still a worker. Um, you still have an employer and any worker can be part and should be part of the labor movement, should be, in my opinion, whether you're you know, working at Starbucks or Amazon or whether you're working in an office or uh, at a school or a university or a worker. So in that sense, you know, professors who don't have any expertise in labor history or labor studies can still be active in their own faculty unions or other kinds of you know, professional organizations to make their jobs and their work lives better. But also labor scholars, historians or sociologists, whatever, who focus on labor issues can also be very helpful in, in actual union activism, in being able to provide research that can help propel union campaigns to take on employers who are against their workers unionizing. Sometimes having just information, statistics, data, interviews can be a very powerful tool for any kind of social or any kind of activism because it, it allows activists or workers to be able to say to the public, to the media, or to their employer, we know what we're talking about. We have uh, professors backing up what we say. So that can be really helpful. And in terms of labor history, I think it can be really helpful for workers to understand that the struggles that they're going through are not necessarily new, that other people have been demanding the same kinds of changes for decades or centuries, and that these same kinds of conflicts have been with us for a very long time. So this isn't all just angled thing that somebody just came up with yesterday. Right. This is part of a long continuing struggle for justice. So while you were a grad student at UIC, you were active in the GEO, the Graduate Employees Organization, rising to the position of co-president. And when you transitioned to a faculty position, you became a humanities representative on the representative assembly for UIC-UF, the UIC United Faculty Union. And in the interest of full disclosure... I am a member of UICUF, a member of its representative assembly representing the social sciences, and a member of the bargaining committee, which is currently in contract negotiations with UIC administration. So I just want to be very clear about that. So I think when many people think about unions, they think about manufacturing or trades. But at least as far as I'm aware, some of the largest and most active unions are in the realm of education. So why is that? And why is it necessary for university professors who are some of the most highly educated people in the country to have unions? Because presumably, if they don't like their place of employment, they have a bunch of resources that they can corral to get another job. So why are education unions in general and faculty unions in particular so necessary? Yeah, I think you're right that oftentimes the general image of what a union worker is, is somebody in a factory or in a mine or, you know, building trade, which is certainly very true. And 
especially in the mid to late 20th century, that was really the heart of the union movement in the United States was in industry and building trades. And, you know, as I'm sure a lot of folks know, in the last 40 years or so, we've seen deindustrialization and major economic change in the U.S. and this move towards a more service-oriented economy. And part of that has meant that fields like education, as well as healthcare, have become some of the largest sectors of the economy in terms of where the jobs are and where people are working. So you have like University of Illinois Chicago is this massive employer in the city of Chicago, not only in terms of all the academic workers, professors, faculty, graduate workers, all of the administrative staff and maintenance and custodial workers, but then also there's a UIC hospital mm-hmm. and all of the healthcare workers, nurses and technicians. So healthcare and education together are just these major massive sectors of the economy today. As the population becomes more educated, as getting a college degree becomes more of the the standard to get a job in this country, as well as as there are advances in healthcare and the population gets older, that's why health we're seeing healthcare get bigger and bigger. More people work in these fields, and again, any worker should have a union to be able to protect them on the job and to be able to have a little bit of democracy in the work. So it isn't just that their employer can dictate everything that they can, together with their coworkers, have a voice, a collective voice, and have a say in what their pay will look like and their working conditions, et cetera, et cetera. So education workers, healthcare workers, other service sector workers, just as much as industrial workers have a right to have a union and have been organizing unions for a long time now. And we've seen like teacher union in the K through 12 schools, teacher unions like the Chicago Teachers Union have become a very strong voice in the labor movement in general, you know, going on strike. There's teachers in Columbus, Ohio, who are on strike this week, 4,000. Mm-hmm. You know, as educational workers often say that our working conditions are our students' learning conditions. Mm-hmm. So it isn't just about the paycheck, although that can be important, of course, because everyone deserves fair pay. For their work, but also it's about making sure that there are enough resources being put into schools or universities so that the students can benefit as much as possible. So that's also what comes into play with education unions for faculty and for, in particular, professors at university. Yeah, the image is typically professors, this really fancy job, and it's very comfortable and there is certain you know advantages, of course, to being a professor, which you know a lot of people get PhDs. But universities are becoming more and more run like their corporations, with sort of business people at the very top making the decisions in a business-like manner, and with not enough funding, especially for public universities, like University of Illinois, not enough public funding going in. So there's a lot of cost cutting, and there's a lot of business type things that are done to try to bring in as much revenue as possible. And what all that happens, in my opinion, is that the ultimate mission of universities, which is education and research, ends up kind of coming in second to other kinds of uh, gimmicks to scrape together as much money as possible. And what's been happening over the last several decades is that more and more faculty, as well as graduate workers, become more exploited economically, have less and less job security are made as you know contingent workers. Instead of having a long-term career, they're only hired semester-by-semester basis or year-by-year basis and don't know from one semester to the next or one year to the next if they're still going to have a job. 
And oftentimes people who get PhDs end up becoming adjunct instructors where they're just on a contract basis. And often they get paid very low wages. They don't necessarily qualify for benefits like health insurance. And they have to work at multiple universities in one semester just to scrape together enough classes to teach, scrape together a basic income. And I believe the statistics now are upwards of like 70% of the people who do the teaching in universities are contingent faculty. They're not the tenure track you know, professors that we usually think of. And so it's a really small shrinking number of the traditional tenure, tenure track professors. This is why there's also been a growth of unions in, in higher education to try to have more job security for the adjunct instructors and better pay and benefits as well as making sure that administra the administrations of universities are putting their resources towards the actual education and research committee. And similarly with graduate employees who are people working on their master's degree or people working on their PhD who often end up being the faculty, the professors in the future, more and more of the teaching burden falls on them. Here at UIC, graduate workers, they might be called teaching assistants, but in many cases, in many departments, they're the actual instructor of a class, teaching 60 to 100 students um, as the actual instructor, coming up with all the, the coursework and the syllabus, the lesson plans, teaching the classes, grading the papers, and getting paid really, really low wages while also still working on their degree. So it's a highly exploited workforce, and this is why we need unions. This is why at the GEO has gone on strike twice in the last three years for new contracts to try to get raises down on the fees that they have to pay and, and get a little bit more job security and other protections as well. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a huge misunderstanding or lack of understanding about who professors actually are. And I, I was at a, an event once and it was political people were there and they were talking to students and the students were asking about the high cost of tuition. And somebody said, it's, you know, it's because your professors get paid so much. And I was like, no, 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 no. Let me just stop you right there. And there are some faculty who do make a very nice salary, but that is not most people. And again, another full disclosure, I am one of the contingent faculty that Professor Shirky was talking about. While I am not an adjunct who in the most common use of that term is they're paid on a class-by-class -class basis rather than a salary. I, so I do have a salary. I am currently on three-year contracts, and my employer can decide at the end of a contract, yeah, no, we're not going to renew you. That by itself is, I mean, people say like, oh, out in the real world, you know, non-education, people get fired all the time or whatever. But one difference I think about higher ed that most people don't understand is that our job market is not like the job market for an accountant or for a lawyer or for a doctor, right? You find out that you don't have a job in six weeks. It's not like you can just go to another university and be like, oh, hey, I'm ready to start a job, right? That's not how it works. And I think a lot of people don't really appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, for one thing, there's, you know, just reality of an academic calendar and when semesters start and when they end. And so it, it's not just a revolving door and just start at any old time uh, if it's already in the middle of a semester or something like that. So that's that's one issue. 
And yeah, I mean, a lot of times the jobs that you see advertised are the, those contingent adjunct jobs. And sometimes there's a limited amount of jobs where you already live. So there's a good chance you would have to move somewhere else for your job, which is, you know, you mentioned at the beginning that I've recently been hired as in a new job at SUNY in New York City. So I'm having to you know, figure out moving out there right now, you know, and I would, you know, which is great, a great opportunity. But, you know, I also would have been perfectly happy to just stay, stay you know, in Chicago where, where I am, but there just weren't jobs in my field. Yeah. Let's talk about grad students for a second, because adjuncts who are getting paid on a course-by-course basis, I believe, are very exploited. But graduate students have to be probably the most exploited category of academic employees, at least that I'm aware of. Because they are getting their education, and if they are an employee, they are most likely having their tuition paid by the institution, right? So that's a huge benefit, right? They don't have to pay tuition, but they get paid poverty wages. And so, you know, living in a city like Chicago, I mean, I don't know what the the going rate is for a teaching assistant, but when I was a grad student in Pittsburgh, granted this was 15 years ago, we got $16,000 a year, a year to live in a city, but our education was paid for. So people thought that was enough and we had to work, right? So getting an outside job was very difficult. So how do universities kind of get away <laughs> with exploiting this type of labor? And how is that legal to pay people below the poverty line? Well, for one thing, so I mean, you're absolutely right. I agree with everything you just said. And yeah, you mentioned 15 years ago, you were getting paid $16,000 a year to live in a major city like Pittsburgh. The minimum yearly pay for a graduate worker at UIC only a few years ago was also 16000 <gasps> <laughs> And then we, in like 2015, we got raised, we got, well, it was a gradual raise, but by, tw- by the year 2018, we had boosted it to $18,000. And that's when we went on strike in 2019. And now it's at like 20000 And it's going to go up to about 25000 over the next few years. So it's not a lot. But one of the things is that graduate workers are classified as part-time. You know, they say, well, you're only working like 20 hours a week instead of 40 hours a week. Even though, of course, graduate workers, in addition to the, the work they do as teaching assistants or research assistants, they're also doing their, their work as a graduate student, their coursework, their research, writing a dissertation and all of that. In the sciences, they're doing hours and hours of lab work. Yeah. And for a long time, private universities, and a lot of public universities still like to do this, but the tradition has been to say that graduate workers are not really workers. They're just students who are, you know, they're getting some training on the job, they're apprentices, they like that, and they're just kind of helping out, and that the labor they do isn't real labor. And therefore, we don't have to treat them like actual employees and follow actual labor laws or employment laws and pay them real money. That's how most universities like to see it. And at private universities, that was until 2016, and a ruling came down from the National Labor Relations Board that was the way legally defined. And I want to remind people, graduate workers oftentimes, you know, are adults who have families, who have kids of their own, who have responsibility. I think this is another thing. The image that universities try to project is that graduate workers are just kids who, you know, basically just live with their parents and they don't, they don't have any responsibilities and it's okay. But that's not the reality at all. Most 
I think the average age of a graduate student worker is roughly 30 years old. And go to the administrators and say, you know, I need raise and et cetera, et cetera. And they can be very polite in listening to you, but then they'll just say, nah, we don't want to do that. Yeah. So, so this is why you need to have a union. The union is just you, know, you and your coworkers together acting collectively. Going on strike isn't something that any worker really does lightly or you know, just for fun or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's a big risk because you're risking losing a paycheck and you don't know if you're going to actually win uh, when you go on strike. So it's a decision that is very difficult to make. And it only it's kind of a last resort after negotiations have not gotten anywhere. And it's a way to finally put pressure on the employer, you know, in the case of graduate workers or faculty with the university administration, to finally say, okay, we have to actually negotiate for real now. We have to actually listen to their concerns and try to offer something to meet them halfway at the very least. Yeah, I'm still flabbergasted by the fact that when the UIC United Faculty Union was created, when it formed, the minimum salary for a starting lecturer was $27,000. And the union (laughs) has brought that up considerably. Let's take a break. This is Professor Floros in the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. to the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Floros, and I'm joined in the classroom today by Professor Jeff Shirky, soon to be a professor in labor studies at SUNY Empire State College, Harry Van Arsdale Jr. School of Labor Studies. So in the introduction of the podcast, I mentioned that unionization efforts at some of the U.S.'s largest companies, including Amazon, Starbucks, that we're hearing a lot more about this. So before we talk specifically about what's going on today, Can you talk a little bit about what the trend in unionization has looked like over the last 50 years or so? So like basically kind of approximately what percentage of the American workforce is unionized today as compared to, say, the 1970s? Yeah, so it's been bad, (laughs) but I would say, I mean, if you're pro-union and pro-work, it's been a really bad Sad story the last several decades of decline. Union density, percentage of people in the workforce reached its peak right after World War II, uh, going into the early 1950s, of about 35%. About 35% of the non agricultural workforce was unionized. So that's about one in three workers. That's the highest it's ever gotten in the United States. And since then, it's been in a kind of gradual decline. And yes, since the 1970s and 80s, when deindustrialization really got going and you had factories, steel mills shutting down, laying off tens of thousands of workers, those workers were members of unions. So that contributed greatly to this decline in union membership, as well as the laws generally not favoring workers who are trying to form a union, employers 
testing any technique that they can to try to stop unions from forming. And we can talk more about that, the kind of union busting tactics. So combined with all of that, today, the amount of the total workforce that's or non-agricultural workforce that's unionized is only 10%. So at its peak, it was 35%. Now it's only 10%. And of that, private sector workers, specifically only about 6% of the private sector is unionized. So in other words, 94% of all private sector workers do not have a union in the United States. Wow. Okay. Yikes. All right. Has that number been increasing in the recent years? Is it is there an uptick or not so much? No. The best we can say is that the decline has maybe slowed ever so slightly. <laughs> oh it's still it's still a decline. It's still going down. The best news every year, you know, that it's the um Department of Labor's Bureau of Labor Statistics that puts out this information every year. And the best news usually is we held steady. We, you know, we're, we're still at 10% of the total. And I would say, you know, that, so yeah, 6% of the private sector is unionized. The public sector right now is where unions are strongest, roughly 30% of the public sector, public sector workers. So this is people working for like public universities like UIC or public schools or any other kind of government, federal, state or local government related employment. There's a history behind that, you know, the Private sector saw its biggest push in unionization in, in industri- industrial jobs in the 1930s and 40s during the Great Depression and World War II. And then the public sector saw its big push of unionization in the late 1960s, early 70s, coinciding with the civil rights movement and other social movements of the time period because African-Americans, people of color, women are disproportionately represented as public sector. So some of the social movements of the 60s and 70s kind of carried over into the labor movement with public sector unionization. So today, unions are strongest in the public sector. I'm glad you brought up the civil rights movement because historically, I mean, back in the day, historically, labor unions in the United States were extremely hostile to extending membership to African-Americans and other workers of color. And you mentioned that, you know, the push in in public sector unions came from increased rights for those folks plus women in society generally, that them being larger proportions of the of the public workforce and therefore unionization. So in both public and private sector unions, are racial tensions still an issue in the modern labor movement or has that kind of been put behind a relic of history? I mean, I, I think the situation has improved from how bad it was 100 years ago or 70 to 50 years ago. There was for a long time, going back a long time, a tradition of more left-wing unions that tried to be more racially inclusive and inclusive of immigrants and inclusive of women. But the mainstream of the labor especially in the late 19th, much of the 20th century, was led by white men who were native-born, so they were not only often racist, but anti-immigrant as well, and didn't believe in the idea of women being part of the workforce. So they were very exclusive. But because of some of those civil rights movement and other social movements and uprisings in the 60s and 70s, which not only led to public sector unionization, but also led to reform movements within the private sector industrial unions. 
because a lot of the members of those unions, I'm thinking especially like United Auto Workers, representing workers in the auto industry, Detroit, which was, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, the auto industry was at the center of the whole economy. And a lot of the workforce was African-American, but they were often relegated to the lowest paying jobs. And they didn't have a voice in the union, within the United Auto Workers. All the union leaders were white, and they didn't really care about what the black had to say. So they formed uh, rank-and-file reform movements and caucuses to try to win more of a voice within their unions and push for more representation in union leadership, as well as having the unions take on more of an actual concern of what the specific needs were of African-American workers or other racial minority workers. So there's been a lot of improvement, I would say. Right now, in 2022, the labor movement in the United States is more socially progressive and diverse than it ever has been. I mean, and not just in terms of who the members are, but who the leaders are and the kinds of decisions that are made and the kind of politics that are supported is the most progressive and socially diverse, socially conscious that it's ever been. But when you take into account the fact that it often has been so bad that that's not necessarily saying a lot. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask this later, but when we think about electoral politics, labor unions have historically been aligned with the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party markets or has marketed itself as the party of labor. And unions have been some of the largest donors to Democratic political campaigns. And I'm wondering if that's still the case because I was listening to a podcast about a coal miners union in Alabama. And because they're in coal, the Democratic Party has not come to their aid when they've had conflict with their employers, again, because of the Democratic Party's interest in action on climate change, going to clean energy rather than than dirty sources of energy. But the Republican Party has also not taken up their cause because they're union, right? And so I'm wondering if working class whites at least used to make up the lion's share of the industrial unions and maybe still do of the private sector unions. We hear about white working class being affiliated with Trump and Trump-like Republicans. So... What is the relationship between unions and the Democratic Party or have people's like identities as white working class become more salient than being a worker? Well, for, before I say anything else, I, I think the what you were mentioning about Alabama is the United Mine Workers strike at Warrior Met Coal. This is a strike that's been going on for over a year now. Yeah. It deserved more national attention. And I just want to say that there's a, a journalist people can look up, Kim Kelly, who's a labor journalist. She's been one of the few people who's been covering this consistently for the last year. So look up Kim Kelly and her coverage of Warrior Met Cold Strike. Learn more about that. But yeah, this is a huge question. The, the labor movement's relationship to the Democratic Party, well, it was really cemented in the New Deal of the 1930s with Franklin Roosevelt passing a lot of economically progressive kinds of laws, including labor law reform, provide a legal path for private sector work for unions and to engage in collective bargaining and a number of other things. 
that's kind of where this relationship really crystallized. It kind of existed before that as well. You could argue, I'm not alone in thinking this, that that, that relationship deserves to be reconsidered maybe. Because as you mentioned, unions give millions and millions of dollars to Democrats. And in fact, that has been for the last several decades for the top labor leaders in the country. That's been their main strategy of how to keep been a little less focused on actually organizing workers and going on strike and fighting for more in the work. And instead has been focused on let's give money to the Democrats in the hopes that they will pass favorable laws and protect us. And the Democrats really haven't delivered very much. There hasn't been much change. Like right now, there has been in the last couple of years a big push to pass an important labor reform bill called the PRO Act, protecting the right to organize, which would make it a lot easier for workers to be able to form unions without their employer interfering, without union busting. And there was a big hope that once Biden became president and the Democrats took control of both chambers of Congress, that this law would get passed. And, you know, almost two years have gone by now and the law has gone. The House passed it, but it's gone nowhere in the Senate and there doesn't seem to be any hope of it going anywhere. This happened under Bill Clinton. This happened under Jimmy Carter. You know, it's the same story. So the problem is, you know, a lot of other wealthy countries in the world traditionally have had like a labor party or a socialist party or some kind of party that is meant to represent the interests of the labor movement and the working class. In the U.S., for a variety of reasons that, that I'm sure you as a political scientist would understand much better than me, we don't have that. Options are the Republicans or the Democrats. So that's part of the problem is that the labor movement is kind of, has nowhere else to go, really, in terms of politics. I mean, yes, there have been attempts to form labor parties and third parties, and there's debates about how that works, et cetera, et cetera. But there is this kind of popular image in the media that I think is a little bit overblown of, you know, the white working class in conservative and being pro-Trump and not caring about climate change and wanting to continue working in these industries that are contributing to environmental degradation and global warming. When you actually talk to a lot of these blue-collar white workers, you find that they're, they're actually far more complicated than the media often depicts. Sure. They, they might like certain aspects of what the Republicans have to say, but they also like Bernie Sanders. They like, you know, his socialist message as well. And you know, things that don't necessarily logically make sense, but make sense to them. Or they might also be very concerned about climate change and be very aware of, you know, environmental problems because they live with those problems. They, they suffer the effects of the pollution or that what have you directly. But at the same time, it's like, this is my livelihood. This is my job. What else can I do? Like, there needs to be some way of some way of me continuing to have a livelihood with a transition to clean energy. And the working class generally, you know, yes, when people hear the phrase working class, I think the image, again, is like a white blue collar worker. But really, the working class is very diverse. It's mm -hmm. the image that should come to mind is a woman of color in a service sector. Show. That's the reality of who is a worker as well as who is a union member today because of deindustrialization and all those changes. I mean, there is some truth in that image of the white working class being conservative and pro-Trump. I think it's... It is more complex than that. And I think what some politicians, various kind of left-wing socialist politicians like Bernie Sanders want to do, I think their goal is you know, to not simply say to the white working class, oh, you're so conservative and right-wing and write them off. And then they kind of just naturally gravitate towards an extreme right-wing politician like Trump. 
but instead try to say, yeah, we hear your concerns, especially when it comes to economic issues, and try to build a, a coalition of forces that might seem unlikely to together, but perhaps and historically have sometimes, you know. When when there was a big socialist party in the US in the early 20th century, it was strongest in what are today the conservative red states, you know, in places like Kansas and Oklahoma. Mm. That's where the Socialist Party was like had its some of its biggest numbers, biggest strength. And in the Midwest, in Wisconsin, places that, that today are that we think of very conservative used to be very progressive and left wing. So you mentioned the legislation of the New Deal, and this included the National Labor Relations Act. What I want to talk about for a second is the difference in how the law applies to public sector versus private sector and the role that states have in like what, what state laws can affect private versus public, because that's something that I don't really understand. Is the National Labor Relations Act only about private sector and states set the laws about public sector? Can you talk about that, please? Yeah. Yeah. The National Labor Relations Act was one of the you know signature New Deal laws passed under Franklin Roosevelt in 1935. It's also called the Wagner Act because the main champion in the Senate was Robert Wagner. And yes, the National Labor Relations Act, Wagner Act, does only apply to the private sector. So it excludes all public sector and also it excludes agricultural workers and domestic workers. This is part of the sort of racist, unfortunately, a legacy of the New Deal, where a lot of the Southern Democrats win their support, agricultural workers, domestic workers, out of not only the National Labor Relations Act, but also the Social Security Act and some of these other laws, because large proportion of agricultural workers and domestic workers in the South were Black, or in the Southwest were Mexican-American. So yeah, National Labor Relations Act is only private sector. Public sector, for a long time, didn't have any legal rights to form unions or collectively bargain. And for non-federal public sector workers, states that have set those laws to decide whether or not public sector workers should have the right to form a union collectively the right to go on strike. So the laws vary between states. In more traditionally democratic states, blue states, public sector workers have a lot more rights. The more conservative red states, they don't necessarily have the same amount or, or sometimes no rights to have unions or collectively or go on strike. In Illinois, the laws are pretty favorable. Public sector workers cannot only form unions and bargain but can also have the legal right to go on strike. Like in New York State, public sector workers do not have the right to go on strike. What? Yeah. So they can collectively bargain, but the biggest tool in forcing management to bargain with them is not in their toolbox. Correct. Like in West Virginia, they don't have any real rights, uh, including the right to strike. But you saw a few years ago, Teachers, all the public sector school teachers all across the state of West Virginia went on strike anyway. And it's not, it wasn't necessarily 
against the law. It was just the law didn't give them that right. But there was not there's not a law that says you can't go on strike. So there's no law at all. So they kind of went on strike anyway, which is how the labor movement in general started. You know, there was originally no legal rights at all, and right. workers just did everything. So public sector labor law is state by state, except for the federal employees. And with that, it's like a series of various executive orders that different presidents, going back to Kennedy, have issued that give federal workers certain amounts of rights to unionize. So wait, if they're executive orders, then that means that a president could come in and say, I'm signing a new executive order prohibiting federal workers from organizing. Yeah, Trump did not an outright like ban on organizing, but Trump issued a number of orders that made things a lot more difficult for federal employees that Biden undid the moment he came to office. And I think this has happened a lot with you know Republican and Democratic presidents. Speaking of who the president is, the National Labor Relations Act, this is private sector work. The federal agency that enforces it is the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board. And the top people in the NLRB are appointed by whoever the president is. So when we have Democratic presidents, the NLRB is generally sympathetic to unions and can help unions to win union elections. The NLRB will crack down on employer union busting and interference and say that's illegal. You can't intimidate your workers trying to form a union. But when there's a Republican president, they put on more anti-union people on the National Labor Relations Board, and it ends up being a lot harder to form a union or to arbitrate disputes and things like that. So it's always a it's just a kind of constant back and forth depending on who, who the president is. So is this a reason why these Amazon and Starbucks unionization efforts have been successful recently because they're not being stepped on by the Labor Relations Board under a Biden presidency? Yes, I think that is a big reason. I mean, of course, it's the workers themselves and their organizing that is the real driving force. But the fact is that the federal agency enforcing the law around forming a union is sympathetic to them. And as Amazon and Starbucks have been doing an incredible amount of union busting and a lot of illegal things, tactics that violate the National Labor Relations Act, the labor board is cracking down on them and saying, you can't do that and filing complaint and trying to stop them. That has been a big help. I think under a Republican president, it would be a difference. We'd still see a lot of the same organizing, but I don't know if we would be seeing the same amount of victory. Many states have passed laws that make them right-to-work states. Can you explain what that is, what it means if your state is a right-to-work state? Yeah. Right-to-work laws are part of private sector labor law. So the National Labor Relations Act was passed in 1935, federal law covering all private sector workers. And in 1947, there was a a series of amendments put on the National Labor Relations Act called the Taft-Hartley Act, which was passed by a Republican majority. President Truman vetoed the Taft-Hartley Act, and the Republicans in Congress overrode his veto. And what the Taft-Hartley Act did was it, it took the National Labor Relations Act from the New Deal and imposed a whole bunch of new anti-union measures into it. 
So the, the, the original legislation was meant to help workers form unions, and Taft-Hartley Act made it more difficult. And one of the things the Taft-Hartley Act says is that it says individual states, if they want to, can pass right-to-work law. First of all, it's a, the phrase right-to-work is like propaganda from anti-union <laughs> people. The actual lobbyist who first popularized that phrase in 1940, he was from Texas, and he was like, uh, an open racist, an open anti-Semite, and hated labor. And he's the one who came up with this idea of let's call it right to work because it sounds good. Everyone wants to have to have a job and to work. But um, what it basically means is if you are in a workplace that is represented by a union and covered by a union contract, you can opt to just not pay any dues to the union. And the problem with that is when you're represented by a union, that the, 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 no, the only way unions are funded is from member dues. It's not getting like outside donations or, or anything like that. No, unions are funded by the member. This is what makes unions good democratic organizations, in my opinion, that they're not accountable to someone else for their money. They're only accountable to their own members. They're the ones paying for it. And the idea is it costs money to to organize and to negotiate a contract and to have staff who are helping to enforce the contract and you know to print materials to have an office all of these basic things of running a union you know it requires a budget and the money comes from members paying dues and so the traditional idea is if you're covered by a union if they're representing you and making sure you get raises and benefits then you have to contribute your share the same way that as citizens we have to pay taxes or the basic services that are provided by the government. And when you're not paying your fair share, then this is what you know economists call the free rider problem, where one can get the services for free. And if one person can get it for free, then another person says, well, then why am I paying? And then another person says, yeah, why am I paying? And then next, you know, nobody's paying. And then the services fall apart, or in this case, the union ends up being defunded. And that's the whole point of right-to-work laws. It's to defund unions. So I think right now it's about 27 states have passed right-to-work laws, many of them just recently in the last 10 years. And in right-to-work states, union membership, of course, is a lot lower because unions are being defunded. And also wages are generally lower. There's all kinds of other negative economic impacts that researchers have found right-to-work states. Now, with the public sector, Something really kind of, in my opinion, really terrible happened in 2019 or 20, no, 2018. I was going to bring this up next. <laughs> which is the entire public sector in the United States came effectively. And this was through a Supreme Court case called the Janus v. Afsme case, where the conservative Republican justices on the Supreme Court took away fair share due out of the entire public sector. Basically, making the whole public sector effectively right to work with the idea of defunding public sector unions. And the reason this was not an accident, this was something that various anti-union lobbying groups and right-wing conservative groups had been pushing for for many, many years and had been bringing cases to the courts in the hopes of getting the Supreme Court to do something like this. Because, as I mentioned before, the public sector is where unions are strongest today. This is where unions have their most strength and powers in the public sector. So if you're anti-union and you want to destroy the labor movement, the place to target is the public sector. And public sector workers across the country can opt out of paying their dues if they have a union. 
I think a good sign is that so far it doesn't seem like unions have public sector unions have been bankrupted by this yet. Uh, if anything, we've seen more public sector unions working harder, organizing harder, becoming a little bit more like militant at the workplace, going on strike more with various teacher strikes, graduate worker strikes, or faculty strikes to try to push for the best possible contract they can get as a way of you know proving to the members that. This union is worth it. We're fighting for you. you. Really are fighting, and you should be getting your fair share of dues. Keep this alive because as soon as it's gone, lose everything we fought for and won. Okay, so let let me just summarize to see if I understand this. So the National Labor Relations Act made it easier for private sector unions to organize, have collective bargaining, etc. But the Taft-Hartley Act from 1947 basically clawed, I mean, so they can still organize, et cetera, but if a state chooses to pass legislation to this effect, then you have to be an active card-carrying member of the union. Only those folks pay dues and others who don't join the union, even though they're covered by the collective bargaining agreement, they don't have to pay dues. Right. So that's the private sector. In the public sector, states have always had the right to determine whether everyone had to pay dues regardless of union membership or not. But the 2018 Janus case said it doesn't matter if the state said you had to pay fair share. It's a violation of your First Amendment right to free speech to make you pay. And so now, regardless of what a state law says, nobody who is not a member of the union has to pay dues to a public sector union. Yes. Okay, so the only people who are compelled to pay union dues if they are not members of the union are private sector unions in states that are not right to work. Yes. And even there, and this was something true of the public sector before Janice, is that workers who, like say you're a, you're a worker in a unionized workplace and you're covered by the union contract, you're benefiting from it, but you don't like unions, or you don't like the fact that your union is giving money to Democrats, say you're a Republican or you're an independent, and you don't like that your dues money is going towards Democrats, you can do something that's, I think it's just called fair share or agency, where you can say, I only want my money going towards the actual work of the union of negotiating the contract and enforcing the contract. I don't want any of my dues money going to political things. That is an option that people have. And that's something that existed in the public sector before Janice. And then Janice said, no, forget that. Just they don't have to pay anything. Okay. So I can't opt out of paying taxes for things that I don't support. But okay, that's good to know. So I do just want to make the point that Janice versus AFSCME. So AFSCME stands for the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, the AFSCME in this case is the Illinois branch of that union, and this case was actually started by the previous governor, I believe, Bruce Rauner. The case was kicked out because, so he sued in order to basically make public sector right to work in Illinois, and it was denied because he didn't have standing, and so 
Janice and I think somebody else who's an actual person like stepped in to fight on their own behalf. And so we can thank Illinois Bruce Rauner for Janice. Yeah. And, and Mark Janice himself. And again, this was not, this was all very coordinated. There had been another case before this, like the year before. In California. Yeah. Yeah. It, it made its way to the Supreme Court, but then Scalia died. Yeah. And so it ended, but if he had been alive, it would have gone through then. So it was kind of just a matter of, this was a long-term strategy, very deliberate. Yeah. Okay, great. All right. So let's talk about Amazon and Starbucks. Why are we seeing unionization efforts in these places? Is this new or is it just getting more attention because these are such big companies? Or have working conditions changed or the type of workers who are in these types of jobs? What is leading to at least the awareness of of these unionization efforts? And are they new? Yeah, I think it's more than just attention. I think it is new or significant on its own. I mean, yes, there have been people trying to organize in Amazon and Starbucks and a lot of other famous brand name companies and major employers for a long time. I mentioned the fight for 15 a little bit ago, which was in some of the biggest fast food chains that was starting 10 years ago. So there, we have seen this kind of organizing before, but what's new here is the amount of success in terms of winning union elections. These are by the National Labor Relations Board. You know, Amazon Labor Union winning their election in Staten Island on April 1st. That was the first time an Amazon warehouse won a union election. And all these Starbucks stores as well. This is a new phenomenon. Trader Joe's, uh, Apple, REI, other big companies have been actually not just organizing and protesting, but actually winning union elections. Uh, that is something new and significant, I think. Why it's happening, I think, yeah, there's a number of reasons. One of them, the biggest maybe being the pandemic and how that shaped a lot of people's opinions and ideas about work and what work is and their, what kind of rights they have and how valuable they are. Many people, of course, being laid off in service sector jobs and restaurants and bars, cafes, when they had to close down, people suddenly being unemployed. If it weren't for the federal government stepping in with COVID relief packages, expanded unemployment insurance and stimulus check, all that, eviction moratoriums, a lot of people would have been completely out on the street, devastated. It would have been like the Great Depression or worse. So that people, a lot of people recognize just how precarious they are. Also, a lot of like grocery store workers, warehouse workers had to, you know, were deemed essential right? Essential. And they had to continue coming to work. Even at the height of the pandemic, there was no vaccine and they didn't necessarily always have the best safety. They didn't have um, personal protective equipment. They didn't Mm -hmm. have masks. Uh, Obviously, healthcare workers were dealing with this the most on the front lines, nursing home. And then other workers being able to work from home and having a whole different experience of spending more time with their family, having more time for themselves. And realizing a lot of the stuff that they do, they could just be an email, you know, they don't, really, they don't have to sit through all these meetings and, and all the stuff. They don't have to be in a workplace from nine to five. So, yeah, all, for many different reasons, people were able to kind of reevaluate their relationship with work. And at places like Amazon and Starbucks and Trader Joe's, you know, a lot of workers said, you know, we're worth a lot more. We're, we're, we are providing a valuable function to the economy. 
and we're not treated with respect. And a lot of workers found that their employer doesn't really care if they live or die. I mean, that was the actual, they were very troubled to discover this. Yeah. On top of that, there's just the larger trend of growing economic inequality for many decades as unions have gotten weaker, as corporations have gotten stronger, as there's been more deregulation of the economy, et cetera. Growing inequality with workers having a harder time advancing professionally or being able to have a home, buy a house, to have a family. Student loan debts, which is you know, a big topic today as Biden is set to announce uh, some debt cancellation, maybe. More and more of the workforce, especially at these like service sector jobs and these big companies, are workers who are college educated. A lot of the Starbucks workers and Amazon workers are recent college grads, or at least have had some college education, and they have student loan debts. And you know, people go to college thinking that they're going to advance in life, going to get a career, and and instead they get burdened with debt and they get stuck in these service sector jobs that don't pay them very well and that treat them like garbage, and they get fed up with that. And on top of all that as well, um, more activism, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement, the George Floyd uprising in 2020, the Me Too movement, and numerous other movements, the climate justice movement, et cetera. There's been a lot of social movement activity, uh, immigrants' rights, et cetera, that young people, uh, working class people have been directly involved in based on as I said before, the working class is more diverse now than it has ever been in the U.S. So based on their various identities and communities that they come from, they're involved in different kinds of movements and being able to bring that same energy into the workplace as in the 60s and 70s, civil rights movement kind of made its way into the public sector union movement. All of those things, I think, are contributing. Well, unfortunately, we have reached the end of our time. Professor Shirky, thank you so much for joining me in the politics classroom and sharing your expertise. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Professor Jeff Shirky is an incoming assistant professor of labor studies at the SUNY Empire State College Harry Van Arsdale Jr. School of Labor Studies in New York City. His book, Blue Collar Empire, the AFL-CIO and the Global Cold War, will be published in 2023 by Verso Books. You've been listening to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Floros, and you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Dr. Floros. If you're interested in more information about the topics covered in today's episode, please check out the bookshelf section of the podcast website at thepoliticsclassroom.org, where you can also find a transcript of the show. I'm trying to get the word out about the podcast, so if you're so inclined, please highly rate and review the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I would really appreciate it. And I'd also love to hear if you have any suggestions for future episodes or guests to interview. Thanks for listening today. That's all I've got for this week. Class dismissed.